This is the SFF Audio Podcast. This week's podcast is a recording of The Hanging Stranger by Philip K. Dick. It's read for us by Matt Kelly and is produced by Wonder Audiobooks, which has tons of great stuff over on Audible and probably elsewhere as well. It was first published in Science Fiction Adventures, December 1953. Stick around for a discussion after the audiobook finishes. And now, The Hanging Stranger. At 5 o'clock, Ed Lois washed up, tossed on his hat and coat, got his car out, and headed across town toward his TV sales store. He was tired. His back and shoulders ached from digging dirt out of the basement and wheeling it into the backyard. But for a 40-year-old man, he had done okay. Janet could get a new vase with the money he had saved, and he liked the idea of repairing the foundations himself. It was getting dark. The setting sun cast long rays over the scurrying commuters. Tired and grim-faced, women loaded down with bundles and packages, students swarming home from the university, mixing with clerks and businessmen and drab secretaries. He stopped his Packard for a red light and then started it up again. The store had been open without him. He had arrived just in time to spell the help for dinner, go over the records of the day, maybe even close a couple of sales himself. He drove slowly past the small square of green in the center of the street, the town park. There were no parking places in front of Lois TV sales and service. He cursed under his breath and swung the car in a U-turn. Again he passed the little square of green with its lonely drinking fountain and bench and single lamppost. From the lamppost, something was hanging. A shapeless dark bundle swinging a little with the wind, like a dummy of some sort. Lois rolled down his window and peered out. What the hell was it? A display of some kind? Sometimes the Chamber of Commerce put up displays in the square. Again, he made a U-turn and brought his car around. He passed the park and concentrated on the dark bundle. It wasn't a dummy. And if it was a display, it was a strange kind. The hackles on his neck rose, and he swallowed uneasily. Sweat slid out on his face and hands. It was a body. A human body. Look at it! Lois snapped. Come on out here! Don Ferguson came slowly out of the store, buttoning his pinstripe coat with dignity. This is a big deal, Ed. I can't just leave the guy standing there. See it? Ed pointed into the gathering gloom. The lamppost jutted up against the sky, the post and the bundle swinging from it. There it is! How the hell long has it been there? His voice rose excitedly. What's wrong with everybody? They just walk on past. Don Ferguson lit a cigarette slowly. Take it easy, old man. There must be a good reason or it wouldn't be there. A reason? What kind of reason? Ferguson shrugged. Like the time the Traffic Safety Council put that wrecked Buick there. Some sort of civic thing. How would I know? Jack Potter from the shoe shop joined them. What's up, boys? There's a body hanging from the lamppost, Lois said. I'm going to call the cops. They must know about it, Potter said, or otherwise it wouldn't be there. I got to get back in. Ferguson headed back into the store. Business before pleasure. Lois began to get hysterical. You see it? You see it hanging there? A man's body! A dead man! Sure, Ed. I saw it this afternoon when I went out for coffee. You mean it's been there all afternoon? Sure, what's the matter? Potter glanced at his watch. Have to run. See you later, Ed. 
Potter hurried off, joining the flow of people moving along the sidewalk, men and women passing by the park. A few glanced up curiously at the dark bundle and then went on. Nobody stopped. Nobody paid any attention. I'm going nuts, Lois whispered. He made his way to the curb and crossed out into traffic among the cars. Horns honked angrily at him. He gained the curb and stepped up onto the little square of green. The man had been middle-aged. His clothing was ripped and torn. A gray suit splashed and caked with dry mud. A stranger. Lois had never seen him before. Not a local man. His face was partly turned away, and in the evening wind he spun a little, turning gently, silently. His skin was gouged and cut. Red gashes, deep scratches of congealed blood. A pair of steel-rimmed glasses hung from one ear, dangling foolishly. His eyes bulged, his mouth was open, tongue thick and ugly blue. Oh, for heaven's sake, Lois muttered, sickened. He pushed down his nausea and made his way back to the sidewalk. He was shaking all over with revulsion and fear. Why, who was this man? Why was he hanging there? What did it mean? Why didn't anybody notice? He bumped into a small man hurrying along the sidewalk. Watch it, the man grated. Oh, it's you, Ed. Ed nodded dazily. Hello, Jenkins. What's the matter? The stationary clerk caught Ed's arm. You look sick. The body. They are in the park. Sure, Ed. Jenkins led him into the alcove of Lois TV sales and service. Take it easy. Margaret Henderson from the jewelry store joined them. Something wrong? Ed's not feeling well. Lois yanked himself free. How can you stand there? Don't you see it? For God's sake! What's he talking about? Margaret asked nervously. The body, Ed shouted. The body hanging there. More people collected. Is he sick? It's Ed Lois. You okay, Ed? The body, Lois screamed, struggling to get past them. Hands caught at him. He tore loose. Let me go. The police. Get the police. Ed. Better get a doctor. Yeah, he must be sick. Or drunk. Lois fought his way through the people. He stumbled and half fell. Through a blur, he saw rows of faces, curious, concerned, anxious, men and women halting to see what the disturbance was. He fought past them toward his story. He could see Ferguson inside talking to a man, showing him an Emerson TV set. Pete Foley in the back at the service counter, sending up the new Philco. Lois shouted at them frantically. His voice was lost in the roar of traffic and the murmuring around him. Do something, he screamed. Don't stand there. Do something. Something's wrong. Something's happened. Things are going on. The crowd melted respectfully for the two heavyset cops moving efficiently toward Lois. Name? The cop with the notebook murmured. Lois. He mopped his forehead wearily. Edward C. Lois, listen to me. Back there. Address? The cop demanded. The police car moved swiftly through traffic, shooting among the cars and buses. Lois sagged against the seat, exhausted and confused. He took a deep, shuddering breath. 1368 Hearst Road. That's here in Pikeville? That's right. Lois pulled himself up with a violent effort. Listen to me. Back there, in the square, hanging from the lamppost. Where were you today? The cop behind the wheel demanded. Where? Lois echoed. You weren't in your shop, were you? No, he shook his head. No, I was at home, down in the basement. In the basement? Digging, a new foundation, getting the dirt to pour a cement frame. Why? What has that got to do with... Was anybody else down there with you? No, my wife was downtown. My kids were at school. Lois looked from one heavy-set cop to the other. Hope flickered across his face, wild hope. You mean, 
because I was down there, I missed the explanation. I didn't get in on it like everybody else. After a pause, the cop with the notebook said, That's right. You missed the explanation. Then it's official. The body. It's supposed to be hanging there. It's supposed to be hanging there for everybody to see. Ed Lois grinned weakly. Good Lord. I, I guess I sort of went off the deep end. I thought maybe something had happened. You know, something like the Ku Klux Klan. Some kind of violence, communists, or fascists taking over. He wiped his face with his breast pocket handkerchief, his hand shaking. I'm glad to know it's on the level. It's on the level. The police car was getting near the Hall of Justice. The sun had set. The streets were gloomy and dark. The lights had not yet come on. I feel better, Lois said. I was pretty excited there for a minute. I I guess I got all stirred up. Now that I understand, there's no need to take me in, is there? The two cops said nothing. I should get back to my store. The boys haven't had dinner. I'm all right now. No more trouble. Is there any need of... This won't take long, the cop behind the wheel interrupted. A short process. Only a few minutes. I hope it's short, Lois muttered. The car slowed down for a stoplight. I guess I sort of disturbed the peace. <laughs> Funny getting excited like that, and Lois yanked the door open. He sprawled out into the street and rolled to his feet. Cars were moving all around him, gaining speed as the light changed. Lois leapt to the curb and raced among the people, burrowing into the swarming crowds. Behind him he heard sounds, shouts, people running. They weren't cops. He realized that right away. He knew every cop in Pikeville. A man couldn't own a store, operate a business in a small town for 25 years without getting to know all the cops. They weren't cops, and there hadn't been any explanation. Potter, Ferguson, Jenkins, none of them knew why it was there. They didn't know, and they didn't care. That was the strange part. Lois ducked into a hardware store. He raced toward the back, past the startled clerks and customers, into the shipping room and through the back door. He tripped over a garbage can and ran up a flight of concrete steps. He climbed over a fence and jumped down on the other side, gasping and panting. There was no sound behind him. He had got away. He was at the entrance of an alley, dark and strewn with boards and ruined boxes and tires. He could see the street at the far end. A streetlight wavered and came on. Men and women, stores, neon signs, cars. And to his right... The police station. He was close, terribly close. Past the loading platform of a grocery store rose the white concrete side of the Hall of Justice. Barred windows. The police antenna. A concrete wall rising up in the darkness. A bad place for him to be near. He was too close. He had to keep moving. Get farther away from them. Them? Lois moved cautiously down the alley. Beyond the police station was the city hall, the old-fashioned yellow structure of wood and gilded brass and broad cement steps. He could see the endless rows of offices, dark windows, the cedars and beds of flowers on each side of the entrance. And something else. Above the city hall was a patch of darkness, a cone of gloom denser than the surrounding night, a prism of black that spread out and was lost into the sky. He listened. Good God, he could hear something. Something that made him struggle frantically to close his ears, his mind, to shut out the sound. A buzzing. A distant, muted hum like a great swarm of bees. Lois gazed up, rigid with horror. The splotch of darkness hanging over the city hall. Darkness so thick it seemed almost solid. In the vortex, something moved, flickering shapes. 
things descending from the sky, pausing momentarily above the city hall, fluttering over it in a dense swarm and then dropping silently onto the roof. Shapes, fluttering shapes from the sky, from the crack of darkness that hung above him. He was seeing them. For a long time, Lois watched, crouched behind a sagging fence in a pool of scummy water. They were landing, coming down in groups, landing on the roof of the city hall and disappearing inside. They had wings, like giant insects of some kind. They flew and fluttered and came to rest and then crawled crab-fashion sideways across the roof and into the building. He was sickened and fascinated. Cold night wind blew around him and he shuddered. He was tired, dazed with shock. On the front steps of the city hall were men standing here and there. Groups of men coming out of the building and halting for a moment before going on. Were there more of them? It didn't seem possible. What he saw descending from the black chasm weren't men. They were alien from some other world, some other dimension, sliding through this slit, this break in the shell of the universe, entering through this gap winged insects from another realm of being. On the steps of the city hall, a group of men broke up. A few moved toward a waiting car. One of the remaining shapes started to re-enter the city hall. It changed its mind and turned to follow the others. Lois closed his eyes in horror. His senses reeled. He hung on tight, clutching at the sagging fence. The shape, the man-shape, had abruptly fluttered and flapped after the others. It flew to the sidewalk and came to rest among them. Pseudo-men. Imitation men. Insects with ability to disguise themselves as men. Like other insects familiar to Earth. Protective coloration. Mimicry. Lois pulled himself away. He got slowly to his feet. It was night. The alley was totally dark. But maybe they could see in the dark. Maybe darkness made no difference to them. He left the alley cautiously and moved out onto the street. Men and women flowed past, but not so many now. At the bus stood waiting groups, its lights flashing in the evening gloom. Lois moved forward. He pushed his way among those waiting, and when the bus halted, he boarded it and took a seat in the rear by the door. A moment later, the bus moved into life and rumbled down the street. Lois relaxed a little. He studied the people around him. Dulled, tired faces. People going home from work. Quite ordinary faces. None of them paid any attention to him. All sat quietly, sunk down in their seats, jiggling with the motion of the bus. The man sitting next to him unfolded a newspaper. He began to read the sports section, his lips moving. An ordinary man, blue suit, tie, a businessman or a salesman, on his way home to his wife and family. Across the aisle, a young woman, perhaps twenty, dark eyes and hair, a package on her lap, nylons and heels, red coat and white angora sweater, gazing absently ahead of her. A high school boy in jeans and black jacket, a great triple-chin woman with an immense shopping bag loaded with packages and parcels, her thick face dim with weariness. Ordinary people, the kind that rode the bus every evening, going home to their families, to dinner, going home with their minds dead, controlled, filmed over with the mask of an alien being that had appeared and taken possession of them, their town, their lives, himself too, except that he had happened to be deep in his cellar instead of in the store. Somehow he had been overlooked. They had missed him. Their control wasn't perfect, foolproof. Maybe there were others. Hope flickered in Lois. They weren't omnipotent. 
They had made a mistake, not got control of him. Their net, their field of control had passed over him. He had emerged from his cellar as he had gone down. Apparently their power zone was limited. A few seats down the aisle, a man was watching him. Lois broke off his chain of thought. A slender man with dark hair and a small mustache. Well-dressed brown suit and shiny shoes. A book between his small hands. He was watching Lois, studying him intently. He turned quickly away. Lois tensed. One of them. Or another they had missed. The man was watching him again. Small dark eyes, alive and clever. Shrewd. A man too shrewd for them. Or one of the things itself, an alien insect from beyond. The bus halted. An elderly man got on slowly and dropped his token into the box. He moved down the aisle and took a seat opposite Lois. The elderly man caught the sharp-eyed man's gaze. For a split second, something passed between them. A look rich with meaning. Lois got to his feet. The bus was moving. He ran to the door. One step down into the well. He yanked the emergency door release. The rubber door swung open. "'Hey!' the driver shouted, jamming on the brakes. "'What the hell?' Lois squirmed through. The bus was slowing down. Houses on all sides, a residential district, lawns and tall apartment buildings. Behind him, the bright-eyed man had leaped up. The elderly man was also on his feet. They were coming after him. Lois leaped. He hit the pavement with terrific force and rolled against the curb. Pain lapped over him. Pain and a vast tide of blackness. Desperately, he fought it off. He struggled to his knees and then slid down again. The bus had stopped. People were getting off. Lois groped around, his fingers closed over something, a rock lying in the gutter. He crawled to his feet, grunting with pain. A shape loomed before him, a man, the bright-eyed man with the book. Lois kicked, the man gasped and fell. Lois brought the rock down, the man screamed and tried to roll away. Stop, for heaven's sake, listen! He struck again, a hideous crunching sound. The man's voice cut off and dissolved in a bubbling wail. Lois scrambled up and back. The others were there now, all around him. He ran awkwardly down the sidewalk, up a driveway. None of them followed him. They had stopped and were bending over the inert body of the man with the book, the bright-eyed man who had come after him. Had he made a mistake? But it was too late to worry about that. He had to get out, away from them, out of Pikeville, beyond the crack of darkness, the rent between their world and his. Ed! Janet Lois backed away nervously. What is it? What? Ed Lois slammed the door behind him and came into the living room. Pull down the shades, quick! Janet moved toward the window. But do as I say. Who else is here beside you? Nobody, just the twins. They're upstairs in their room. What's happened? You look so strange. Why are you home? Ed locked the front door. He prowled around the house into the kitchen. From the drawer under the sink, he slid out the big butcher knife and ran his finger along it. Sharp. Plenty sharp. He returned to the living room. Listen to me, he said. I don't have much time. They know I escaped, and they'll be looking for me. Escaped? Janet's face twisted with bewilderment and fear. Who? The town has been taken over. They're in control. I've got it pretty well figured out. They started at the top, at the city hall and police department. What they did with the real humans, they... What are you talking about? We've been invaded from some other universe, some other dimension. They're insects, mimicry, and more. Power control minds, your mind. My mind? The entrance is here, in Pikeville. They've taken over all of you. The whole town, except me. We're up against an incredibly powerful enemy, but they have their limitations. That's our hope. They're limited. They can make mistakes. Janet shook her head. 
I don't understand, Ed. You must be insane. Insane? No. Just lucky. If I hadn't been down in the basement, I'd be like all the rest of you. Lois peered out the window. But I can't stand here talking. Get your coat. My coat? We're getting out of here, out of Pikeville. We've got to get help. Fight this thing. They can be beaten. They're not infallible. It's going to be close, but we may make it if we hurry. Come on. He grabbed her arm roughly. Get your coat and call the twins. We're all leaving. Don't stop to pack. There's no time for that. White-faced, his wife moved toward the closet and got down her coat. Where are we going? Ed pulled open the desk drawer and spilled the contents out onto the floor. He grabbed up a road map and spread it open. They'll have the highway covered, of course, but there's a back road. To Oak Grove. I got into it once. It's practically abandoned. Maybe they'll forget about it. The old ranch road? Good lord, it's completely closed. Nobody's supposed to drive over it. I know. Ed thrust the map grimly into his coat. That's our best chance. Now call down the twins and let's get going. Your car is full of gas, isn't it? Janet was dazed. The Chevy? I had it filled up yesterday afternoon. Janet moved toward the stairs. Ed, I... called the twins. Ed unlocked the front door and peered out. Nothing stirred. No sign of life. All right so far. Come on downstairs, Janet called in a wavering voice. We're going out for a while. Now, Tommy's voice came. Hurry up, Ed barked. Get down here, both of you. Tommy appeared at the top of the stairs. I was doing my homework. We're starting fractions. Miss Parker says if we don't get this done... You can forget about fractions. Ed grabbed his son as he came down the stairs and propelled him toward the door. Where's Jim? He's coming. Jim started slowly down the stairs. What's up, Dad? We're going for a ride. A ride? Where? Ed turned to Janet. We'll leave the lights on and the TV set. Go turn it on. He pushed her toward the set. So they'll think we're still... He heard the buzz and dropped instantly the long butcher knife out. Sickened, he saw it coming down the stairs at him, wings a blur of motion as it aimed itself. It still bore a vague resemblance to Jimmy. It was small, a baby one. A brief glimpse, the thing hurtling at him, cold, multi-lensed, inhuman eyes. Wings, body, still clothed in yellow t-shirt and jeans. The mimic outline still stamped on it. A strange half-turn of its body as it reached him. What was it doing? A stinger. Lois stabbed wildly at it. It retreated, buzzing frantically. Lois rolled and crawled toward the door. Tommy and Janet stood still as statues, faces blank, watching without expression. Lois stabbed again. This time the knife connected. The thing shrieked and faltered. It bounced against the wall and fluttered down. Something lapped through his mind. A wall of force, energy, an alien mind probing into him. He was suddenly paralyzed. The mind entered his own, touched against him briefly, shockingly. An utter alien presence settling over him, and then it flickered out as the thing collapsed in a broken heap on the rug. It was dead. He turned it over with his foot. It was an insect, a fly of some kind. Yellow t-shirt, jeans. His son Jimmy. He closed his mind tight. It was too late to think about that. Savagely, he scooped up his knife and headed toward the door. Janet and Tommy stood stone still, neither of them moving. The car was out. He'd never get through. They'd be waiting for him. It was about ten miles on foot. Ten long miles over rough ground gullies and open fields and hills of uncut forest. He'd have to go alone. Lois opened the door. For a brief second, he looked back at his wife and son. Then he slammed the door behind him and raced down the porch steps. A moment later, he was on his way, hurrying swiftly through the darkness toward the edge of town. 
The early morning sunlight was blinding. Lois halted, gasping for breath, swaying back and forth. Sweat ran down his eyes, his clothing was torn, shredded by the brush and thorns through which he had crawled. Ten miles on his hands and knees, crawling, creeping through the night. His shoes were mud-caked. He was scratched and limping, utterly exhausted. But ahead of him lay Oak Grove. He took a deep breath and started down the hill. Twice he stumbled and fell, picking himself up and trudging on. His ears rang. Everything receded and wavered. But he was there. He had got out, away from Pikeville. A farmer in a field gaped at him. From a house, a young woman watched in wonder. Lois reached the road and turned onto it. Ahead of him was a gasoline station and drive-in. A couple of trucks, some chickens pecking in the dirt, a dog tied with string. The white-clad attendant watched suspiciously as he dragged himself up to the station. Thank God, he caught hold of the wall. I didn't think it was going to make it. They followed me most of the way. I could hear them buzzing, buzzing and flitting around behind me. What happened? The attendant demanded. You in a wreck? A hold-up? Lois shook his head wearily. They have the whole town, the city hall and the police station. They hung a man from the lamppost. That was the first thing I saw. They've got all the roads blocked. I saw them hovering over the cars coming in. About four this morning, I got beyond them. I knew it right away. I, I could feel them leave. And then the sun came up. The attendant licked his lip nervously. You're out of your head. I better get a doctor. Get me into Oak Grove, Lois gasped. He sank down on the gravel. We've got to get started. Cleaning them out. Got to get started right away. They kept a tape recorder going all the time he talked. When he had finished, the commissioner snapped off the recorder and got to his feet. He stood for a moment, deep in thought. Finally, he got out his cigarettes and lit up slowly, a frown on his beefy face. "'You don't believe me,' Lois said. The commissioner offered him a cigarette. Lois pushed it impatiently away. "'Sit yourself!' The commissioner moved over to the window and stood for a time, looking out of the town of Oak Grove. "'I believe you.' he said abruptly. Lois sagged. Oh, thank God. So you got away, the commissioner shook his head. You were down in your cellar instead of at work. A freak chance. One in a million. Lois sipped some of the black coffee they had brought him. I have a theory, he murmured. What is it? About them. Who they are. They take over one area at a time, starting at the top, the highest level of authority, working down from there in a widening circle. When they're firmly in control, they go on to the next town. They spread slowly, very gradually. I think it's been going on for a long time. A long time. Thousands of years. I don't think it's new. Why do you say that? When I was a kid, a picture they showed us in Bible League, a religious picture, an old print. The enemy gods defeated by Jehovah. Moloch, Beelzebub, Moab, Baalan, Ashtaroth. So? They were all represented by figures. Lois looked up at the commissioner. Beelzebub was represented as a giant fly. The commissioner grunted. <laughs> an old struggle. They've been defeated. The Bible is an account of their defeats. They make gains, but finally they're defeated. Why defeated? They can't get everyone. They didn't get me, and they never got the Hebrews. The Hebrews carried the message to the whole world. The realization of danger. The two men on the bus. I, I think they understood had escaped like I did. He clenched his fists. I killed one of them. I made a mistake. I was afraid to take a chance. The commissioner nodded. 
Yes, they undoubtedly had escaped, as you did. Freak accidents. But the rest of the town was firmly in control. He turned from the window. Well, Mr. Loyce, you seem to have everything figured out. Not everything. The hanging man. The dead man from the lamppost. I don't understand. Why? Why did they deliberately hang him there? That would seem simple, the commissioner smiled faintly. Bait. Loyce stiffened. His heart stopped beating. Bait? What do you mean? To draw you out, make you declare yourself, so they'd know who was under control and who had escaped. Loyce recoiled with horror. Then they expected failures. They anticipated... He broke off. They were ready with the trap. And you showed yourself. You reacted. You made yourself known. The commissioner abruptly moved toward the door. Come along, Loyce. There's a lot to do. We must get moving. There's no time to waste. Loyce started slowly to his feet, numbed. And the man. Who was the man? I never saw him before. He wasn't a local man. He was a stranger, all muddy and dirty, his face cut, slashed. There was a strange look on the commissioner's face as he answered. Maybe, he said softly. You'll understand that, too. Come along with me, Mr. Loyce. He held the door open, his eyes gleaming. Loyce caught a glimpse of the street in the front of the police station. Policemen, a platform of some sort, a telephone pole, and a rope. Right this way, the commissioner said, smiling coldly. As the sun set, the vice president of the Oak Grove Merchants Bank came up out of the vault, threw the heavy time locks, put on his hat and coat, and hurried outside onto the sidewalk. Only a few people were there, hurrying home to dinner. Good night, the guard said, locking the door after him. Good night, Clarence Mason murmured. He started along the street toward his car. He was tired. He'd been working all day down in the vault, examining the layout of the safety deposit boxes to see if there was room for another tier. He was glad to be finished. At the corner, he halted. The streetlights had not yet come on. The street was dim. Everything was vague. He looked around and froze. From the telephone pole in front of the police station, something large and shapeless hung. It moved a little with the wind. What the hell was it? Mason approached it warily. He wanted to get home. He was tired and hungry. He thought of his wife and kids, a hot meal on the dinner table. But there was something about the dark bundle, something ominous and ugly. The light was bad. He couldn't tell what it was. Yet it drew him on, made him move closer for a better look. The shapeless thing made him uneasy. He was frightened by it. Frightened and fascinated. And the strange part was that nobody else seemed to notice it. This concludes the reading of this story. This story is performance copyrighted 2007 by Wonder Audiobooks. For more unabridged vintage fiction titles, visit us on the web at www.wonderaudio.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tomahome. Hello, guys. Hey. Hey, what did you think of this story? I really liked it. Excellent. See you next week. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, I kind of related to a Twilight Zone episode. I'm oh. surprised it was never adapted. I guess that, that makes sense, yeah. Huh. Yeah, I, I liked it as well. Um, yeah, and it felt like a Twilight Zone to me. Um, well, it also I, felt kind of like a... Um, Oh shoot! Why did the the name escapes me? Raiders, I want to say it. The 
Oh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Aha, yes. That's that's what I was going to say. It's it mm-hmm. it's very much like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, isn't it? Was it uh, was Body Snatchers before or after this one? Just curious. I did my research. So uh-huh. here's the story. Okay. Um, Body Snatchers was originally written uh, under a slightly different title. I think maybe just Body Snatchers or Body Stealers um, in 1954. So this is uh, the year after this. This uh, sorry, <laughs> mm-hmm. the Hanging Stranger is precedes Body Snatchers I see. by a year. By a year, gotcha. Yeah, at least in publication. Mm-hmm. And then um, there was some revisions on Body Snatchers as well. What most people say about Invasion of the Body Snatchers is that uh, it's a ripoff of a Heinlein novel, um, The Puppet Masters, which is from 1951. But after hearing this story, it seems much more of a ripoff of this story, don't you think? Yeah, I would say so. I don't know if you... Have you read... uh, I I read Puppet Masters, but it was so long ago that it's very dim memory. Um, I actually, actually read that as a kid. I, I remember mm-hmm. it being a lot of fun. I, it is, I read it maybe it is, once. Yeah, I remember enjoying it. It is a ton of fun, and mm-hmm. there are some elements that are certainly, uh, uh, you know, similar in all three stories. But um, I, I think this short story works marvelous, marvelously as a, as a, you know, a miniature version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but does so in a Philip K. Dick way, as opposed to a, I don't know, a more novelistic way. So what 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 do you mean by a Philip K. Dick way? Uh, uh well, um, it's it's uh, I think what the main uh, the main takeaway I have from this is it's it's about a lack of empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone everyone uh, it, at a couple points in the story it seems as if the the audience the the regular people on the streets don't care uh, or don't think that it's even there. Right, but it does say in a couple of points in the story that people do n- look up at it, the, the hanging stranger, mm-hmm. but they don't. They it doesn't stop them in their tracks. It's just like any other adornment in the street, and um, the only person who does care is is the main character, and he has a very strong reaction. As anyone, you know, if you went outside and you saw a dead person hanging from the streets, you you would have a strong reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, to me, it was it was like a, about one of Phil K. Dick's sort of standard things. is It's about empathy, and it's also about paranoia. And you know, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was as a paranoid fantasy. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Is it a science fiction story? Is it a fantasy story? What do you think? You could almost say it's a horror story, like a Stephen King story. It's definitely a horror story, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, right? I'm thinking about it. I don't know as far as science fiction fantasy. I, I guess I'd call it science fiction. It was published in Science Fiction Adventures, but I'm I'm not sure it's science fiction. It may be fantasy. Uh, the explanation. Fantasy. Sorry, I mean, you wouldn't call it hard SF. No, it's not a lot of technology. No, no. I, I think from the source of. Well, near near, near the end of the story, he yeah. talks about gods and things, and I guess that could be. But um, that's a but, but he also in yeah he also implies. Um, Aliens, though, yeah, right. another dimension. These guys are; these things are coming in from another dimension. Oh, well, maybe it's a. It could almost be um, Lovecraftian, then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're just like giant flies. They're not really some kind of. Beelzebub. Yeah, and the and the biblical reference. You know, there's just that one biblical reference in there. I, 
you know, I think it's one, you know, there's multiple stories out there that say uh, something like, you know, this piece of the biblical story was actually really happened, but it was aliens. It wasn't um, gods and humanity just misinterpreted what they were experiencing. Right. You know, and I think that's kind of what Philip K. Dick was saying there. Yeah, that's, but that makes so, sense. Yeah, so I think it was a, um, I would still call it science fiction. Yeah, I, it, 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 it's it got a, a very Twilight Zone ending and Twilight Zone feel to it's it. It's circular. Yeah, in, in that sense, yeah, because it is so circular, it's it's it feels like it could be a Twilight Zone episode. But um, I just, I, 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 I thought instantly when I, I thought there was a, the title, The Hanging Stranger, I thought, oh, it's him. It's him who's hanging in the hmm. street, right? Yeah. And it's like going to be some time loop or something where he... He goes. Uh, oh, that would be a good story. Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes it makes it cool, right? Like, who is that yeah. guy hanging up there? Oh, it's it's me. <laughs> yeah, they, they never find out who the original guy was, right? Yeah, well, but, not but that I can in see. a way, it is him, right? Not okay. not in a. It's not his body. Same the same role as him. Exactly, and and then we get that thing at the end where there's this other guy, the banker, who's in the other town, and he comes outside, and who does he see? He sees the main character. So it is in a way, it is you know the hanging stranger is the main character. It just depends on which one we're talking about, the first mm-hmm. Hanging Stranger or the second one. Which one does the title refer to? It's not the Hanging Strangers, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, but certainly, uh, it, it's... Um, there's uh, One of the things I was thinking about the second time I was listening through it was um, that I was at a dinner party the other night, and um, we were talking about sort of, you know, current political issues and uh there was you know the standard the standard stuff that you know middle east and this the, 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 all the stuff that came up and the thing that i cared about right that i was passionately you know uh upset about were like things like people being detained uh you know unlawfully <laughs> in jail and and uh, like, there's a guy named Byron Son who's who's uh, he was a G20, not even a protester. He was like a securities uh, hacker, and he he was trying to probe and see what would get him in trouble. And he's been in jail for oh, almost a year, and you know, it's just horrific because he he didn't he didn't. It's, it seems to me he didn't break any laws. And if he did break any laws, they're secret laws. So this is like a really big deal to me, and, and nobody cares. <laughs> nobody <laughs> cares at the dinner table, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, if you wandered around the streets saying, Bradley Manning, Bradley Manning, you know, this is terrible, right? If you, if you said that to people, they would say, yeah, you know what, it's not a big deal. And that's how I, I was thinking, like, it's they see that there's this man hung up in the streets and they don't have a strong reaction that that to me is a frightening frightening idea and it also feels very relevant because yeah you see you know injustice and people are saying well you know it's just it's it'll get straightened out or <laughs> what oh my god do you ever yes. have that happen to you where you you feel very strongly about something and and people are like, no, it's not a big deal. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, but yeah, but the feeling that you know it is a horrific idea, it really is. 
Yeah, at one point he says that it's, it's fascist, you know, is it fascists or communists, you know, that broken out into the streets and hung someone up? Mm-hmm. Or KKK or something like that, I think he says. Yeah, yeah. that's right. To right. trap Jesse, be cool. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's right. Um, did you guys see the uh, the uh, re- remake of Invasion of the Body Snacker, uh, Snatchers? Uh, from uh, so the the remake would be like from the seventies or so. Seventies with Leonard. No, no. Okay. No, no. The um, the more recent one um, with uh, Tom Cruise's ex-wife. What's her name? Oh, Nicole Kidman. Kidman. Oh, we we talked about that in the we we did. Uh, yeah, I have not seen it. Oh well. Yeah. Apparently, it didn't do very well. Um, mm-hmm. Probably wasn't that good. I I found it extraordinarily good. Oh. I didn't realize that it was a um I didn't realize that it was a uh, an adaptation until quite far into the movie. I just mm-hmm. thought, oh, the people are acting so strangely. <laughs> <laughs> um I thought it was some sort of thriller or something and then I realized what what it was sort of right at the end because it doesn't say invasion of the body snatchers, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's got like 6 out of 10 on IMDb. That's not a very Oh, that's not the title. No, it's just the invasion. It's from 2007. It's more hip. Yeah, I guess so. But um, in the uh, in in that movie, there's actually a scene um, where it's very it's almost taken from the story. Where remember when Ed Lois he gets on is it a bus? I think he gets on it, and there's two people on the bus that he thinks might have been monsters or might not have been monsters. And and then later on, when he's at the police station, he he says they they probably weren't monsters. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. Why don't they just give each other a look and that causes right. them to just panic and get off the bus? Then yeah, I think he actually kills one of them, or he, he knocks him out at least. Uh, yeah, I I don't I don't think he kills. Oh, oh yeah, he kills his own. Hits son. Him with a stone I, or something. He kills his own son. Yeah, that yeah he stabs his son. Yeah, the, well, the son stabs uh, tries to stab him and. Uh, but, yeah, but yep, yep. there's a scene in the invasion uh, in which she jumps. The main character, you know, uh, Nicole Kidman, jumps onto a subway, and um, she sits down and she's like all panicked. And uh, there's like a father and son on the uh, on the on the subway train, and she he says to her, uh, you know act like it doesn't matter act like you know you have no emotions because then they won't you can fool them right mm-hmm. and that's that is the entire premise of of this story is that hanging stranger is there to as bait right to draw you out and if you do have a strong reaction then you're obviously insane and, <laughs> and must be killed but i i wanted to ask you guys what do you think the point of of recreating all these people would be. I mean, is it just is it just a paranoia story? A paranoia story? It, is it mind controlled humans or is it aliens that look? That's look what like I, I thought. They yeah. were mind controlled humans. Yeah. And what is would it, the purpose be of controlling them? Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. I don't know. What was the purpose in uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Well, I believe. Uh, I, uh, I mean, one of the arguments I think in the nineteen seventies one with. Uh, with um, Donald Sutherland is that th- that they're replacing people on Earth just as that's their reproductive system, but 
it's the reason you should submit to it is because they aren't violent. They are peaceful and they will live in peace and it, you'll still be alive, mm-hmm. right? It'll just be you replaced. Mm-hmm. And that argument sticks also into the, the updated version, the invasion. Um, and, and that's a really interesting argument, you know, like you'll still be alive. Your family will still be alive, but strong negative emotions will be removed. But perhaps also positive, you know, positive uh, high emotions will also be removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you remember Passengers by Robert Silverberg? Mm-hmm. Now, in that story, um, an alien forces would randomly take over people. You know, so not, not everybody was. So it is different from this situation. But it seemed that the purpose there was experience. The right. aliens seemed to want to experience um, life as a human. And they would just um, ruthlessly just take someone over and run their body for a few days and then um, exit their bodies. And uh, and it was horrifying because, you know, you just all of a sudden wake up three days later and, you know, you had no idea what your body was used for for all the last few days. Ache. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. At least they were still alive at the end. Yeah, they were still alive, you know. And uh, yeah, society, in that story, it was uh, interesting because society had kind of adapted to that situation. You know, everyone realizes that if you're working on a project at work and you disappear for three days, you haven't left. You've just been taken over and you'll be back. I know a few people could use that excuse <laughs> at work. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, that exact thing happened to me. No, I, I get occupied by aliens all the time. You know? <laughs> that's kind of like the movie The Hidden. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah, that's a, that's a fun movie. Hmm. But I guess the host usually dies at the end of... Yeah, he, yeah. The, you know what? I never even thought about that. But yeah, Scott, you should check that movie out if you haven't. Okay. Yeah, yeah it doesn't ring a bell to me. Yeah, Kyle MacLachlan uh, is the quasi-FBI agent. <laughs> right. And, um, and uh, it's also notable because it has um, Ivanova from Babylon 5 in it. Right. In a sexy <laughs> role. Sexy and alien Mike, role. <laughs> and Michael Nuri from Flashdance. That's right. Hmm, okay. As the, as it's, actually, it's actually a pretty... Uh, it's like one of those movies, if you're watching late night on TV, you say, I don't know what I got into here, but I really like it. <laughs> yeah, people call it a B-movie, but I, I think it's too good to be a B-movie. Well, it's, but it's, it's, it's a low it's, budget. It's a B-movie you know, uh, script. Uh, it's a B-movie budget, but it's also... Uh, uh, it's well done. It's a very well done. It's like if all B movies could be like that, I'd only watch B movies because mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a it's quite a story. Um, yeah, so it's um, actually you know it's also kind of like Men in Black, isn't it? Oh, because sort of the that. memory eraser, or uh, is there is there that in there? I, no, I was just thinking like, uh, well, maybe it's not like Men in Black. Maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like Men in Black. Oh, yeah, I think it's the first one, an alien crawls inside people. Yeah, that's right. But it's it's uh, it's it's uh, played for comedy, whereas it's not played for comedy in the hidden. Right. So yeah, what do you what yeah. do you think about this this um, what are these aliens or fly people? What why are they taking over people's bodies? Well, I'm I'm looking here. Um, I've got the the print version here. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Let's see. Starting at the top, the highest level of authority. Okay, um, I think it's been going on for a long time. They spread very slowly, very gradually. It doesn't really say purpose, though. But then um, it implies when, see, when I was a kid, a picture they showed us in the Bible League, a religious picture, an old print, the enemy gods defeated by Jehovah, Moloch, Beelzebub, Moab, Balin, 
Ashtaroth. And he says, so? He said, well, they were all represented by figures. Beelzebub was represented as a giant fly. And then the commissioner grunted, an old struggle is what he says. Hmm. So, is he just implying so it's that evil, it's a good, maybe. Yeah, good against good evil? Good versus evil. Yeah. There's a, there's a picture of Beelzebub with the sword. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. We'll add that to the post, I guess. Um, what about, what would you say, um, if that's if that's true, um, you, know, you know, the one thing they have in common, you know, the, the hanging stranger from the first, uh, well, I guess there are three hanging strangers, aren't there? Or there will be three mm-hmm. hanging strangers, at least. Um, the, uh, the f- oh, that is a scary picture. <laughs> Very scary picture. So, uh, if, if they... If the person has to be underground, what's happening above ground? You know, it it reminded me very much of of um, the day of the Triffids. You know, there's the guy mm. in the hospital. He's got his eyes covered. Everyone else is blinded. He comes outside and everything's destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. And that was used in 28 Days Later and also in uh, the both Walking comic. Dead. Yeah, the comic and the television show of The Walking Dead. It's a, it's a wonderful... Uh, premise. I mean, in, in a way, it's 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 also a Twilight Zone sort of premise, right? Mm-hmm. So, are they saying their psychic abilities have a limited range and can't go into a basement depth or something? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they can't go yeah. underground. Some kind, a, a some kind of a scan that happened or something is the impression that I got, and then everybody who was underground just got missed. Yeah. Now, also interesting, and I only noticed it the second time I was I was going through the story. Um, everyone in the town, in the in his his hometown, what's it called? It's, it's like Pike uh, Pikeville. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Everyone in this town is is just a regular person, pretty much, except for they're lacking that that um, that empathy for you know this person up hanging. Yeah, in they act they act street. normal, and he's you know saying, "Hey, look at this body out here." And, you and know? they're all people he knows. Yeah, except and they don't for the act police. Remember, the police are. Not police. He knows they're not right. from. That's true. Yeah, he knew they were fake because he knew all the police in town. Right, and but they all, you know, they it was like they it wasn't that they were they looked like aliens. It was they were people who were strangers, and and yet their townspeople, the townspeople didn't really. They seemed empathetic towards him, right? They were saying, "Oh, are you feeling sick?" Right, or you know, mm-hmm. what's wrong? <laughs> they right. were sort of. Uh, it's it's like um, they didn't they didn't have a uh, a malevolence towards him. They just had a change, right? They had a uh, everything was is like they're being completely replaced, except for except for if you don't if they have strong evidence that you're not one of them, you're gone. Mm-hmm. And they eventually do attack him, right? Right. They mm-hmm. never show it, but. He pushes them far. Well, the, the the his own kid. Oh yeah, he yeah he. I was gonna say like uh, he almost loses his moral compass. You might say like he uh, attacks one guy off the bus and then he stabs his kid and then he actually runs away from his family. I mean, I'm not sure if he intended to go back or not. Yeah, it's so you could say under dire circumstances he might have lost his morals a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's interesting because when he's in the police car. He's he he's sort of we don't have access to his thoughts, which is really also interesting. Uh, in some cases, Philip K. Dick is very careful to give um, give insight into a character's thoughts, but 
in the car, we just see his actions. He's being taken away to the police station by the by the cops who aren't really cops, and we he we later hear that he knew that they weren't cops because they were strangers. Mm-hmm. They weren't real cops. He knew every guy in town, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet, um, he's asking them questions like that oh, the audience wants to know. Like I wanted to know is like. Um, did he did he miss an announcement about the body, right? Um, and he and they said, "Oh, where were you? And uh, were you alone under there?" Right? They're they're investigating because they want to know how many other people are like him, and you know to explain what what went wrong with their invasion plans. Mm-hmm. If that's what they are, it's very enigmatic in a way. Yeah. A lot of questions not answered, but. A very powerful story. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah, when I read a book these days, I kind of get tired of that uh, third-person perspective where you know everybody's, every single thought. Mm -hmm. I just get tired of that after a while. It's it's refreshing to read something where it's just more external. Absolutely. It's it's strange, like, that we get so little. We get basically the... The action, you know, just just the action. We get a lot of description. It's surprising. There's there's mm-hmm. a lot of um, adjectives that you know are used here and there to give the uh, the appropriate response. But we also get the sense that you know it's a small town story. You know, he's a television he's a television salesman, right? I was thinking maybe this is a story about television. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but I I don't think it's a paranoid everyman fantasy. It's 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 very interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I almost thought of it as like an ego boost because he's like the one special <clears throat> person that can perceive it's true. something that nobody else can. That's yeah, true. Yeah. And what was the name of that story that we read where the eye was looking at him through the window? Yeah, that was called. Um, hmm, that was a great story. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm going to say to serve man, but that's the wrong one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it oh, it's called Fair Game. Oh, that's it, Fair Game, right? Yeah. And uh, this has a similarity a to that story. Thing. Yeah, it has a similarity. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. The word bait is used in this. Absolutely. Yeah. I was I was going to bring up a honeypot. That's like a computer term. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where you set bait for a hacker to try to hack a site and uh-huh. then you get trapped. Well, in this case, it's not a honeypot. It's a uh, it's a negative, right? It's a it's a fly pot <laughs> or something like that. Fly paper, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's for the, the bad you know guy. That, the that's, guys. It is fly paper because it's, it's to, to draw the attention, right? Mm-hmm. Draw, the, draw the attention of the, of the negative fly and the non-fly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah, to you draw them no out. Mm-hmm. Which one of these is not like the other one? So, what? As you were reading the story for the first time, did you find that you knew where it was going? Because I found it was pretty surprising. Yeah, I, I, I did it's, not. Oh, I didn't. That's the clincher. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. I mean, I was in my car, so I didn't have hundred uh, percent attention. Mm-hmm. And then I listened to it a second time later. But no, I, I enjoyed the story. I, I didn't expect the ending, and yeah. I, I wasn't definitely wasn't bored. Yeah, but I, I enjoyed it greatly. Now, you said you kind of felt like. The hanging guy was him, but it twisted that just a little bit. So it wasn't a way, but it wasn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, 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 as soon as I heard the title, I thought, "The Hanging Stranger." Who's the stranger? The stranger's got to be him because that would be the ultimate twist, right? Mm-hmm. That sounds like a good story. Well, you know, it, Jess. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, well, 
it's sort of been done. It's um, oh. it's it's Michael Moorcock's Behold the Man, right? Oh. The, the character goes back in time to find Jesus, uh, and he goes back in time to find Jesus and can't find Jesus, and he keeps looking and keeps looking and draws followers in his quest to find uh, Jesus, and eventually he is Jesus, right? He's, oh, he, well, he's saying, I, I, I can't, I can't believe it. I hear I'm surrounded by criminals on my left and criminals on my right, and mm-hmm. I'm nailed to this cross, and I still can't find Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> then someone holds up a mirror, and there he is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's a, uh, it's yeah. I, I think he probably figures it out at, at right. some point in the story, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in. I can't say how much I am impressed with. With a, uh, every Philip K. Dick story I read these days seems to be, you know, just very thought-provoking. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a TV series where they had a Philip K. Dick story every week? You know what? That would be a really good show to watch. And yeah, really I mean, they made enough series about it. Yeah. No, but that it would be better as a short short stories. You know, as a Twilight Zone, Twilight. Right. You know what? Somebody could do it. There's a lot of Philip K. Dick. Uh, uh, public yeah. domain. Could it's, do, uh, uh, it's got precedent. Oh, yeah, um, we have Ray Bradbury Theater. That was That's the right. same kind of thing. Yeah, <clears throat> that TV. So. Or it was um, an HBO radio. series, I think, way yeah, back when. Very early. Yeah. yeah, it could be a limited series. Yeah, a miniseries or would have to be. Philip K. Dick's not writing any new stories. <laughs> yeah, eventually you run out. Um, actually, it's kind of similar to the one I, w- I was telling Scott he should get, and I think you uh, ordered from Amazon the. The um, H.G. Wells uh, anthology. Right. I haven't had time to watch it yet, but it has arrived. I've got it. So uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know about this, Tama, but there's an H.G. Wells. uh, There was an H.G. Wells mini anthology series um, in, I think it was produced in the U.K. I didn't know you wrote that many short stories. Oh, he wrote a ton of short stories, actually. Um, This, I think, has uh, either six or nine stories, but the way it's done... um, they're not, you know, they're not serious stories. But the way it's done is, is uh, all the protagonists are basically replaced by by H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells is is a character in the series, but it relates several of his thought thought provoking um, science fiction short stories, including there's one called um, I think it's called the Crystal Egg. I'm not 100 percent sure that's in there. I think it is, um, and that's like a sort of a prelude to War of the Worlds in a way. Hmm. You know, he doesn't, it's only short stories, so there's no Invisible Man or, you know, War of the Worlds, it's uh, proper, but, um, or the Time Machine, but there's a lot of very science fiction-y stories in there, and I found it very, uh, very rewarding to, to get reminded that he, he did write excellent short stories. Wow, I don't even Hmm. know if those are in print. Oh yeah, they're, the one, I mean, um, <clears throat> the star. I remember the star by H.G. Wells. That one's not included in that in that mm-hmm. adaptation, but yeah, um, I should mention there's a really great reading of the star that was on the BBC, read by Patrick Stewart. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think it's available on Radio Archives, but I haven't looked Probably. for it for a while. Okay, we can show. We can check that out, and um, that sounds great. And so next week, next week we're doing a. Um, Dream Park. Dream Park. Dream have you started Park. on this? Yes, I have. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you guys like it? I don't. I've know. read it's, it before. I read it um, as a oh. teenager. Yep. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh it's basically a sort of a virtual reality Dungeons and Dragons. Is that yeah. what? Yeah. Wow. 
Right. It's a live action role play kind of a thing with um, uh, holograms and things. You know, it's a it's a really detailed holographic Dungeons and Dragons game. Um, and, you go to like a Disneyland a style mystery, place to right? do it, right? Yeah. And it's a murder mystery in, in that setting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I haven't got that in a long time. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, from early '80s, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, nineteen eighty-one, I think. And uh, it's a it just came out as an Audible audiobook, so uh, from Audible Frontiers. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's I, I haven't got to the murder mystery part, so uh, there I guess I'm just far enough into it to to say I'm getting used to the environment mm-hmm. it, the plot seems to mostly be around the adventure that they're having, which mm-hmm. is something that we don't know very much about their adventure. They don't know very much about it except as it's happening. Something right. about a cargo cult, though. That's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll see It'll how it goes. Fun. Yep. I, I know Julie's really excited to, to talk about this one. Uh-huh. She liked it, right? Yeah, she loves it, apparently. Yeah, she loves that book. Which yep. is going to be interesting to talk about. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, you, you guys are doing Ted Chiang on your next podcast, right? Yeah, on the next good story. On yep, it'll be out Thursday. We're going to talk Ted Chiang. Cool. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed because I I, I want to read the stories of your life before uh, I listen to that. Well, you, you'll have to do it then. Well, you know, it's not I, on audio. Not, there's no audio. <laughs> yeah, you must. You must yeah, read. I'm not sure why that one's not audio. I mean, talk about a brilliant story to have on audio. That's yeah. That's one of them. That'd be That's, perfect. Audible Frontiers. Oh mm-hmm. man, I don't know why. It would be. You're right. It's got to be done. It's so mm-hmm. good. Yeah. I guess uh, I don't know how much he sells. Maybe he doesn't sell that much. I, well, he's writing short stories, and um, <clears throat> yeah, you know, nobody, <laughs> nobody novels are the big buys those <laughs> things. Short yeah, I didn't even know about the HQL short stories. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, you can you can find them online. You don't need to right the print right. version. Public domain. But you might be able to find it at the library. I don't think they. They might have a big, big collection of, of stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Scott, I wanted to mention. You know, I I listened to your review of um, your guys's review of that movie. Oh, Fallen. Fallen, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and after watching the movie, I think uh, I have no opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Except, I can't believe you didn't mention it. Neither of you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. The entire movie is shot in browns. Everything's brown. Hmm. Uh, his coat is brown. The leaves mm-hmm. are brown. The, the streets, there's, I don't think there's a scene in the movie that doesn't have a, uh, like a, it's uh, the cinematography or whoever, mm-hmm. you know, is responsible for, for that spent, so much effort making the movie beautifully brown. <laughs> Is that the Nicolas Cage one where he's an angel? <laughs> no, it's uh, oh. uh, Denzel Washington um, oh. plays a police officer uh, chasing a demonic killer. Okay, I might have seen it a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. And the bad guy at the beginning of the movie, uh, he's a Elias Coteus. He's a, a pretty famous Canadian actor. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. He's always he always plays bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> Playing the bad guys. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. You so we face, we never heard of him. Uh <laughs> you'll probably you you know he's he, if if he's in an American movie he's usually like uh the assassin of the president or something you know he's he's always playing a bad guy but he's a good actor. 
This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.